so, <clears throat> Red Mesa Fellowship. That is the name of our church in St. George. I'm Sam. And uh, we'll just run through these little slides and remind me what I'm going to talk about. I had written it down, and it was a disaster in the 8 o'clock service, but that's what the 8 o'clock service is for. So, next. Okay, so, we started meeting in our house when we first got to St. George. Um, we, first Sunday, we knocked on everybody's door in our neighborhood, and we told them who we were, the couple residents that were still at home. Everybody else was in, in the LDS church <laughs> that morning. Uh, but uh, we, we started meeting in our home, and uh, you can do the next one. We started uh, meeting in a park. There's Jeff and Molly. They're leading our worship. Uh, that's the little gazebo we meet in. <laughs> we didn't reserve it. <laughs> I mean, we don't have any money. So we <laughs> we're saving our money so that we can get into a... Uh, we're saving all the money that we're tithing uh, from our respective jobs to get in a building. We're very close which is really exciting, but for in the meantime, you know, as you can see, the weather in St. George at this point is only getting better. We're in the uh, mid-80s. It's like Laramie summer out there. I'm just saying, there's a lot of reasons you should probably come and join Red Mesa Fellowship. The, uh, uh, we're doing a lot of evangelism. Um, our, our, just the, the, I should say the health of our church body is really, we're really doing really well. Um, it's easy to keep tabs on everybody in the church because there's like, Ten of us. So, there's uh, we're our fellowship is sweet. Our unity is is amazing, and I, and I attribute that to the prayers of this church. That's a really important thing to to uh, to be praying for. Not only that we reach people with the gospel in Utah, but that we also maintain our unity. Uh, we're that I'm doing some open air preaching um, at Dixie State University, and you know afterwards we'll have people come and talk to us. Uh, that those two guys there uh, the the, the gentleman in the dark sweater, he didn't laugh. He, I talked to him for a little while, but he, he got pretty offended. But the other guy, um, his name is Scott. You can be praying for him. He's a really intelligent, agnostic guy. Had a background of being a Mormon, but, um, but a real thinker. And so we're really, really hoping we run into him again, invite him over to the house, and uh, feed him and, and love him with the truth. The, uh, um, you can do the next slide. Another way that we're getting the gospel out is uh, through our website. Right now, we're not finished with our website, but we're, this is kind of one of those things that's it's nearly to completion. Where we finish that website, it's going to be a place where we can host our, our podcast and our, our blog posts. We do have a Facebook page if anybody wants to follow us, Red Mesa Fellowship. Uh, but we, the, the intention of doing both the blogs and the podcasts is for, the, for Mormon people to be able to investigate our church uh, to read about some relevant things and how the scripture and how um, lines up with those things in contrast to the uh, popular belief in that area. Uh, the, the podcast is something that, that Mike Shirley really is mostly directing. Him and I do a podcast and we've recorded one and we've got several that are ready to be recorded. We'll record them. We haven't published them yet. Once our website's live, we'll be able to publish those. Allow people to listen um, to listen to a conversation around truth, um, around reason, and how and how we come to the the how, what what Christ meant when he said that I came that you may have life and you may have more abundantly, uh, to be able to show people what that is, uh, that's another way that we're getting the gospel out there. Let me do the next one. Uh, our kids, Aaron and my kids, were they're doing amazing. They're uh, they're making all kinds of friends in school and. Uh, 
Aaron is able to meet the moms of those kids, and we've invited three families into our home from just from school, getting to know those families and, and fed them. And we've got two families that are going to come to our house. They're eager. They, they, they're eager to come to our house. We're going to go through. Um, we're going to basically take them through and contrast um, the nature of God, the nature of man, who Jesus Christ is, uh, to kind of show them from the very beginning um, who the God of Scripture is. They want to know those things. They're heavily involved in the LDS Church, um, but they have never had anybody explain to them the difference in what we believe. They've always been told we believe in the same God. And, and just from the conversations we'd had at dinner, we would go downstairs. Mike, Mike surely lives at our house, and he lives in the basement. And we, we go down there because the kids can stay upstairs and watch a movie or play games, and they're really loud. So we go downstairs, and we, and we just open up Scripture, and we talk to them, and we, and we, and we have these long conversations we had kind of a funny thing happen. I can, I can go a little longer now because it's the last service. So when we were <laughs> just reminding us where we live, we were the second family, LDS family that we were talking to. Um, as we're talking, and I'm really waxing eloquently on the, uh, uh, who Christ is and all this, and Erin is sitting to my left, and she goes, <gasps> like this, right? And I'm like, what? Right? You know, sometimes she does that when I'm driving, you know, and, it gives you chills. You don't know what's going on. And there was a tarantula that had crawled into the, into the living room and it was right by my chair. <laughs> the sucker was like this big. <laughs> anyway, it detracted from what we were talking about for a moment. We had to take it out of there. And, uh, but we're having a really, a really great time loving these people, getting to know them. Um, we're not just sort of blasting them with, uh, with the gospel. Well, I am, I guess, when I open our preach. But... Um, we're able to really communicate around these things as, and, and build friendships with these folks. It's really great. Um, and our kids have been interval, uh, a, a real uh, great doorway into the, these folks' lives that so we'd never be able to meet if we hadn't done it that way. And that's us at a football game. Matt and Kristen and Jeff and Molly have, uh, that's Matt and Kristen there. Matt works at a, a graphic design firm, and he, uh, he is... Um, He's ministering to the guys he works with, but also they send out invitations on their street, and they're having like an ice cream social and some games at their house. Uh, and this is really a time when people like to be out and about because it's not so hot. And so they had four four families come to the come to their house on uh, this last Saturday, um, and they were able to to just love them and talk to them. I haven't actually even heard the extent of it. I just knew that four people four families showed up, so we're really excited about that. The next one, Jeff and Molly. Jeff is uh, working with me at the, the barbershop, and Molly is raising up that beautiful little girl, Keely. She's our mascot. She gives me a lot of amens while I preach. And uh, they've been a, a, a sweet addition to our team. Um, Jeff has been doing really well. Actually, you'd be praying for this. Jeff and I were on campus just kind of figuring out if we can open our preach, where we could do that. And we talked to a... Uh, uh, kind of the guy in charge, we asked him, hey, does the football team have a chaplain? And uh, he said, I don't know, you can talk to the, the athletic director. And we're like, yeah, okay, we can talk to the athletic director. He's like, yeah, his office is down here. So we walked down there. It's a Division II school, so you can imagine he's just kind of playing paddle ball in his office, hanging out, I guess. We go up there, and he, he, uh, he said, yeah, come on in, and we're talking to him. And he said, oh, are you guys LDS? And we said, no, we're, we're, we're believers. We have a, we have a church um, you could call it, I guess, an evangelical church. We're trying to describe it because we don't know if he's Mormon or not. Turns out he's Methodist. 
He said, well, it's probably really good that you're not Mormon because most of the athletes aren't Mormon. And uh, uh, just go down and talk to the coach and tell him I sent you down there. So it, Jeff might be able to be a chaplain for Dixie State University football team. We're really kind of blown away. We didn't even expect that to happen. So many things that are happening are just happening. You know, Aaron is now playing volleyball and basketball in these ward buildings with a bunch of Mormon moms who like to go and do this on a regular basis. She just shows up and they're making friends and telling them what we're doing out there. And they're like, oh, okay. They don't really know how to take it, but they get curious. You know, Mormons like to have non-Mormon friends. It makes them kind of edgy. So it's kind of fun that way. All this stuff's just sort of happening. That's our barbershop. Um, the, uh, it's our, our grand opening. We had a nice ribbon-cutting ceremony. The Chamber of Commerce out there um, came and helped us out with that. Uh, that's a, a great organization. It doesn't really matter. But the, the barbershop is growing. Um, the business is, is getting better and better. Probably not the rate that I like. I would like to go a little faster. Um, so we're working hard to market it better. Uh, but Jeff and I are working there. We've had so many opportunities. People just come in sometimes and talk to us. We're able to um, expound on the gospel and tell them why we're here. Let them know we're both pastors. Um, it's kind of an interesting barbershop where both barbers are pastors, so it's, 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 a, neat, it's a neat dynamic. That's uh, a grocery store called Harmon's. That's a coffee shop in there. And uh, that's Jeff. I don't know, showing the kids something. It's not important. But that, that's one of the tables that we sit at, um, the elder team that we have. And one night we were, we were praying and a guy just walks up behind Mike as we're praying and he's just weeping. So we, I noticed this guy, so I, I said, hey, you know, would you like to sit down? What can we pray for you for, you know? And he said, I, I'm okay, I need to go to work, but I, I just really needed this. We don't know anything about him. We know his name's Isaac and he scurried off to work and um, we've been meeting there on purpose, on that, that same time, on Monday, we're really hoping to see him again. You'd be praying for that. There's a lot of things. People in uh, St. George, Utah, are hungry for the gospel. Um, you know, and, and in Utah, you think, well, that just doesn't happen. People are really resistant to that. Whatever they say, you know, Peter and Luke 5 had been fishing all day and hadn't gotten a fish, and Jesus says to let down his net, and he pulls in a so much that he couldn't lift it, and, and uh, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men from now on. You know, when, when Jesus sends his spirit out and, and begins to convict the world of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the gospel that we share is unstoppable, and we're seeing that in St. George. And the effectiveness of that is certainly also due to your prayers for us. So thank you for praying for us. Thank you for praying that we'd have opportunities to minister because we've got so much opportunity to minister that we can't even keep up with it. There's so many people that want to hear the truth there that we, all we have to do is go out and just do it and share it. Bringing people into our home has been pivotal. Uh, bringing people in and feeding them and loving them and has been a way that they've just opened up and they want to know more. So keep praying because we're seeing a lot of people that want to understand what we are. They won't come to our church service. That's uh, just a, a shot of my family with the city in the background. St. George has a, the area probably has over 100,000 people in it. So there's a lot of, a lot of people there. Um, it is the third most unreached city in the U.S. as far as the gospel is concerned. 
There's lots to do there. That's a, that's a, I was going to talk about that. That is a, a room that we may be able to rent. Um, and that's going to be important because, because we meet in a park. A lot of Mormons um, won't do that because they're, uh, they are concerned um, with somebody seeing them there. Um, they're, it's one thing to learn in private. It's another thing to worship publicly with, with, uh, with Christians. So um, it is good that we would, it is good that we're getting close to uh, being able to worship in a building. Um, so keep praying for that. Um, do I have anything else up there? No, that's it. Let's see. Am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. Um, just keep praying. Keep, keep it up. Whatever, whatever you're praying for, keep praying because it's been fantastic. And praise God for all the answered prayer. Um, and that's really what I wanted to express to you today was we can be thankful that God is working in that city because of the way that this church is praying. So thank you for your prayers. That's all I have to say. Well, church, I've, I've heard that uh, three times, and it's such an encouragement to just uh, see what God is doing through Sam and, and those others, uh, and I so long for that for us personally as a body of believers to have that same outlook. There's nothing that, uh, that Sam and Jeff and those guys are doing that we can't be doing right here in our home, having people in, being intentional about being and sharing the gospel in others' lives. Well, good morning again, church. Welcome to Laramie Valley Chapel. If you're visiting here this morning, uh, as you've already uh, found out that uh, our pastor is in Germany. He is, he is there on a number of meetings on an additional church planning uh, opportunity that's coming up. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, I just I love this church. I love the idea of the fact that the, this church is not going to sit around and wait for things to happen. We are sending people uh, constantly. We are praying for people. We are supporting people. And in that, uh, I can say it is extremely a unique place to get to come and gather and worship. And it is an honor for me to uh, be here with you today. Well, it seems like... Um, in today's Western world, one can almost say nothing without being harshly criticized. I don't know if you guys have paid attention to the news in the last couple of days. I don't watch it much. We get two channels at our house, but I guess I watch it enough to, to, uh, to, to clue in to the fact that if you're a public figure and, and you say anything, you're going to find yourself in a pinch because our world has become so politicized, so politically correct that no longer... Anybody is correct. Everything you say offends somebody, and everybody's going to let you know that it happened. So today, we are going to take a look at an overview of, I would call him a young man. I think he was probably in his 40s, um, a man named Titus. And Titus has been given a clear call, a clear shout-out from the Apostle Paul to go into a Cretan culture and be completely and totally politically incorrect. So the title of today's message is just that. It's politically incorrect. When we think of the New Testament epistles, um, there's something that we need to bring along with us. 
Um, there is a main theme that is going on throughout every epistle uh, without a doubt, and it is this. We need to get this in our minds and in our hearts so when we're reading God's Word, we, we can kind of start to discern some of the tensions and some of the things that are going on. But I wrote this sentence down. I may revise it later, but I, I felt like this, this best describes what's happening in the New Testament and the Epistle era. Jewish men were dispersed to Jewish synagogues to, to proclaim the Jewish Messiah had come and established the New Covenant. That covenant is to include Gentiles as Gentiles without any need to observe the Mosaic law. Salvation always was and continues to be by grace through faith. Now, what was happening in that New Testament era was Paul would go, he would go to these synagogues, synagogues as would Peter and the others, and they would preach and they would preach that the new covenant was to include Gentiles. And not only was it to include Gentiles, but as Gentiles. In other words, uh, Israel always had a mandate that, that people could come in uh, and be a part of the community of Israel. But they, what, had to, uh, they had to become people of the law, right? The men would have to be circumcised and they would fall under all of the Mosaic law. And so... The big shift that is happening in the New Testament and the big argument that is going on is, is, is these Jewish men are going to Jewish synagogues. They're preaching a Jewish Messiah. But they are saying, guess what? The Gentiles can come in and they can stay a Gentile. Well, this is clearly Titus. Titus becomes a picture of that very thing. And as he is going out and as he is encouraging and planting churches, Titus is, is clearly a man who is a shining beacon of that which the apostles were teaching. So it is in this tension uh, that a Gentile can be a Christian without becoming a Jew that one finds scattered all throughout the New, uh, the New Testament epistles and definitely uh, present in this letter to Titus, or to Titus. So let me speak of this really quickly. The pastorals, that is 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, they are, as, as we approach God's word in the text, they're, they're, this is kind of a scary statement. Some of the theologians in here will, will be bothered by it a little bit. It bothers me a little bit to say. But when we read the pastorals, it's about as close as you and I can come to coming to the scriptures and saying, that's written to me. Now, we would never say that, but it's as close as we can get to being there. Right? The Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his life. He says in 2 Timothy that even now that I'm being poured out. And I think throughout the history of those 30, 40 years that those apostles are going out and preaching, there was a certain expectation that Jesus was going to come back. And Paul is coming to the end of his life, and he's looking at these young men he's poured his life into, and I think he's taking account and he's saying, wow, I don't, this is going to happen. So the question clearly becomes to be, what is going to happen in the post-apostolic church? What should the church look like when the apostles are gone? So in this epistle to Titus, he is instructed to give this highly political, incorrect message as far as the world is concerned. 
He is to distinguish between leaders within established churches. Can you imagine that? He is to rebuke church leaders for false teaching of work salvation. He is to instruct the church with proper pronouns and specific gender roles. He is to instruct them to be sober-minded and to be sound in their doctrine and to exemplify and teach the people faith and good works. So with that said, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you today and we come to this text, we recognize our own weakness, Lord. I recognize my weakness as a, as a teacher of your word, Lord. But I pray by your spirit that you would empower me not to speak my own word, Lord, but to proclaim that which you have written down, that which you have proclaimed for us, Lord, that I might think clearly that today, Lord, that I that my nerves or any other things would not be in the way or distracting, Lord, but we would walk out of here a different people than we came in, Lord. I pray that as your word does, it would cut and divide between bone and marrow, Lord, that, uh, that we would recognize it. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to repent and to walk in a new way, Lord. Lord, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Okay. This apostolic instruction to Titus is going to happen um, at, at, at an island called Crete. It is still called Crete today. Uh, Crete is an island that's located in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, straight south of Greece, running east-west. It is approximately 160 to 170 miles long, and it is never more than 35 miles wide. So I guess just as a point of irony, it's almost identical to the size of, of Israel. So prior to Roman occupancy in 67 BC, it had become a well-known center for piracy. So wicked was the culture of Crete that to be called a Cretan was synonymous with being called a liar. Paul references the culture of Crete early in the letter when he tells Titus of men in the church that are insubordinate, idle talkers, and deceivers. They had infiltrated the church with their false teaching for the purpose of sordid gain. In verse 12, Paul writes that one of these dishonest men rightly speaks of of Cretans as always lying, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, this is the only time that I'm aware of in in the New Testament where Paul actually agrees with a false teacher. He goes right on to say, I agree, or amen. He's right. That's the way Cretans are. So one commentator and expositor puts it like this, to the Cretan... To the Cretan, it didn't matter how you got what you had as, as long as you had it. 
In our modern vernacular, we might call sordid gain drug money or laundered money or hush money. You're rich and you got it the wrong way, but who cares? Well, surely the Cretans didn't. If you had money, nothing more mattered and nothing mattered more. Money talked and fame was everything. This was the, this was the culture of Crete. Well, much like America, the Cretan culture had permeated the church, and the young man Titus was left with a hefty call to serve the church, the bride of Christ. Titus was headed into the heart of Crete to every city, armed with the Spirit of God and a letter from his mentor, the Apostle Paul. Clearly, his duty and his calling was to be politically incorrect. Although Titus is not mentioned in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, it is clear that he had been with Barnabas and Paul at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Galatians 2.1, Paul writes, Then after 14 years I, was, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And it went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I had preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, that is, the apostles. That was my interpretation, not the. Lest by any means I might run or had run in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So what do we learn from this text? We learn that Titus is a young man. He's been with Paul and Barnabas for a long time. And what is the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15? It is this pinnacle point in Acts, when all of the apostles are going to come back together, all the ones that are still alive, are going to come back together and they're going to settle this issue. Can a Gentile come into God's people without becoming a Jew? And at the end of that, what do we know they say? Yes and amen. Paul was given the right hand of fellowship and he's to go and continue to preach to the Gentiles the saving grace of God. So Titus had ministered alongside Paul and Barnabas long enough to understand the trickery of the false teachers. These teachers were clearly present in the church at Crete, and Paul had sent a qualified man to root them out and to teach the church what it looked like to be godly men and to be godly women. In the midst of a church and in the midst of a wicked and secular nation, the Cretans. So with that established, with that established let's look at the text. Let me get to it. Where am I preaching? Titus. If you wanted polished, well, I don't know what to tell you. All right, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want us to stop for just a moment. And I want you to think about these, these, these first words that Paul is going to establish in this letter. We so quickly run through them when we come to the, these, these texts, and, and we're so used to them that we almost, we've forgotten the weight of them. And so, just to slow us down a little bit and to appreciate Paul, I want, I want to say this that Paul understand his position to be a slave of God. 
The word bondservant is doulos in the Greek. The word clearly, everywhere else in the Greek world is translated slave. The word is slave. We have in our English, because of our horrible past with, with slavery, we, the, the translators are cautious of that. They don't like using that word. And so they have softened it up to say bondservant, things like that. But I clearly want you to know and understand that Paul saw himself not as a man unto himself, that he understood himself to be a slave of God. And his life in the New Testament proves it out, does it not, church? Paul understood, secondly, that he had been sent from Jesus Christ. So we have used this word, and, and there are words like this, apostle and baptism, that those words, again, for reasons I won't get into or that I have time this morning, they're words often that are left untranslated for titles and, and for monetary reasons even. But, but you look up the word bap, baptizo, and everywhere in the Greek world it means to immerse. That's what it means. It should be and be immersed, not be baptized, right? When we read apostle, it means to be sent. So when we get into Acts, we see there's all kinds of different apostles. Why? And they're not translating the word, so it throws us off a little bit. But it's simply saying they're being sent. So what is the issue here and why am I bringing it up? It's because who sent you matters. And so listen to this for just a second. Paul, a slave of God and sent from Jesus Christ. You see the difference? Not sent from another man, not sent from Antioch, sent from who? Jesus Christ. Paul's authority comes from the fact that he has completely given his life up. He, is a, he sees himself as a slave of God, and he is a herald, or he is a preacher, as he says just in a few more texts down, in a few more verses down, I'm a herald, a preacher. And in that world, in that, uh, in that vernacular, the idea of a herald or a preacher was that you didn't have the right to teach what you wanted to teach. A herald or a preacher, as it is, as it is translated here, is one who just goes and says what the king told him to say. Now that is the introduction to Titus. I am a slave. I am sent from our king, Jesus Christ, not to proclaim my opinion, but to tell you what he said. Now, that changes the way we view the letter, does it not? In verse 5, Paul gives Titus the reason for the letter. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. I want you to notice that there are two things here that Paul is dividing. We skip right to the elders because he's going to give us qualifications of elders, but here's something that I want you to pay attention to because the remainder of the letter is going to prove it out. There are two things. First and foremost, one is to set things in order, the things that are lacking. Contrary to popular belief in a church, oftentimes we think, well, let's just be spirit-led, and everybody has some subjective idea of what it means to be spirit-led. So, so pretty soon what we end up with is this organism of life with no structure to it. It would be much like having a body with no bones, right? We'd just kind of be 
oozing off the pulpit here, right, as I move towards my seat. No bones, no structure. Well, well, Paul is sending Titus, and he is clearly saying, I, I need you to what? Set things in order. So there is an order in the church. Secondly, he is to appoint elders in every city. How many cities, church? Every city in Crete. We read the book of Acts uh, in chapter 2, verse 11. We find that the Cretans were among those who were at Pentecost. So it is likely that this church has, has started. The church in Crete started from Jewish men who moved back to their homes in Crete, and they established the church there. Now Titus, if you can imagine this, is being commanded to go into churches that have been established for 30 years. And he is going to go in and say, nope, you're not qualified. Yep, you're qualified. <laughs> nope, you're not living the kind of life that exemplifies Christ. Yes, you are. And can you imagine the tension that is going on in Titus's world? Now, why did Paul say, for this reason I left you in Crete? Why did he write this letter? Was Titus confused? Did Titus not remember what Paul had asked him to do when he left? The answer, of course, is no way, right? Titus is going into these 30-year established churches. There's false teachers in the churches. There are people that don't know what's going on. He's saying he's being asked to put things in order, right? And what are those churches doing? Saying, get out of here. So my guess is the the reason Titus gets a letter from Paul is because he has clearly ended up with some pretty serious pushback from the church. So prior to getting into this list of qualifications for elders, I want to point out that there are character qualities which already existed in these men. This isn't so much a list of character qualities that we approach and we say, well, if I want to be an elder, I got to be A, I got to be C, I got to be D, on and on, right? Now, I think there's some truth in that. I think we can learn from that. But I think that the bigger issue here is Titus is coming in, and the Spirit of God through Paul is saying, these are the kind of men who are elders. So, yes, and amen. We should all be moving toward desiring what it looks like to be a mature man in Christ. But secondly, these things are going to happen regardless of whether or not somebody is told to do them. Are you tracking with me, church? Right? This is the Spirit of God and the Word of God operating in a person's, in a person to move them towards godliness. And Titus is just being told to recognize that. Does that make sense? Here's this, here is the description given. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for an overseer must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, 
not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, to do what? Both exhort and convict those who are in contradiction. There's one overarching qualification that is clearly meant to govern the others. It is the first. If a man is blameless, or other translations say above reproach, this first demand of an elder should cause every man to get weak in the knees. It clearly, as I studied, caused me to consider, man, am I qualified to be an elder? Now, I'm not an elder at Laramie Valley Chapel. I'm, I'm being considered as one, as, as, uh, as my life is looked at. But um, this first demand of the elder should cause nothing less than a response of a sense of queasiness. Every gospel-believing pastor knows that he cannot live to the standard of sinlessness. Clearly, if this could have been attained, Christ would not have been needed. So the idea here is not that the man is completely sinless, but the man is subject and loving and knowing God. The idea is the same as in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Uh, John writes, Now, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This should be the heart of every Christian, and without a shadow of a doubt, the heart of the elder, to love God and walk in such a way that when people speak of you, they speak well. The task of the elder in Titus' day was as clear then as it is now, to exhort the church with sound doctrine and to call out those who contradict it. First, to exhort the church in sound doctrine. The word exhort gives the reader the idea that the elder should be able to encourage. Now, I don't know how long you guys have been around, but I don't, as bad as I might mess things up, Pastor Paul will always exhort me. He will always lift me up. He will never tear me down. And that's the heart and the spirit of an elder. Everybody knows that we don't get to the end of our life without going through the front end of it. And an elder sees that, an elder recognizes that, and an elder exhorts the church. He tells the church, come on, church, you can do it. Second, Paul says the elder should convict those who contradict. I like the way the NASB puts the construction. It says to refute those who contradict. The elder must be a man who is able to refute false teaching. It seems that today's church is more interested in attracting masses rather than teaching doctrine. Sound doctrine does not come by osmosis. It is worked for. It is studied for. It is challenged and thoughtfully applied. For the expositor, he is not proclaiming his own wisdom, but rather the Lord's wisdom. And that is Paul's heart as he opens, as he calls himself a preacher, a proclaimer. He, he recognizes that it's not my job to give you my opinion. 
is my job to tell you what God said. It is often said that doctrine divides, and you're darn right it does, and it should. We are not here to make everybody happy. We are here to do this thing, this proclamation of what God said. Paul told Timothy in his second letter, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Wow. Are we living in those days, church? Beloved, there has never been a time when qualified elders haven't needed to live, know, and teach sound doctrine. In verses 10 through 16, after rebuking the false teachers who were after dishonest gain and teaching the works of the law for salvation, Paul reflects on the words of Jesus and tells Titus, these men profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. You see, beloved, what a man or a woman says only carries weight as long as their lives prove out that which they profess. When I uh, moved to North Carolina uh, in 2015 to continue on with the Masters of Divinity, I was struggling to figure out my work schedule um, so and my life schedule. I won't get into all the details of it. It was very crazy. I, I started work at 6 in the morning and often wouldn't get home till 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night after classes and running kids from A to B at certain times of the day while my wife was running them uh, at other times of the day. And, and um, I would go to church. I, I worked as an electrician for Colonial Baptist Church. It's this huge church facility um, I, I don't know, I can even explain it to you. It's about 350,000 square foot church facility. And I was hired to be their professional electrician, uh, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping the air conditioning running, all those things. And then I would work there from 6 in the morning till um, uh, 2.15, 2.30 in the afternoon, which is when I would get off, and then I would run and pick up my kids. And after that, I would... I would uh, get them home and turn right back around and go up back to Colonial Baptist Church, which is where the seminary was, and take classes from 6 to 9 p.m. Needless to say, it was a very busy time in my life. But I would go in at 6 in the morning, and I met a, a man. His name was Carl. We always had fun with that because Carl's really not an overly common name. So I would go in the morning, and I would say, hello, Carl, and he'd say, hello, Carl. And uh, just kind of, I don't know, you know, it's funny to me because my name's not very common. But uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Carl. He was a man who came to Christ later in his life. Um, he, uh, he was very resistant, very rebellious. He would tell you that if he stood here today. He was a motorcycler. He was into the whole motorcycle thing. And, and, but he was a neat man. He's in his mid-50s, and he... Gave his life to Christ late, but he loved God 
so deeply that there was never a time after speaking with Carl that my heart wasn't lifted up. So here I was, this seminary kid or man, how I don't know how he would look at me. But uh, here I was, this, this seminary guy coming in, and, and, and in all rights, you're kind of supposed to have your act together, and you're, have, you know, you're gaining all this knowledge. But Carl had retired from the post office early to move to where he could be with his kids and his grandkids. Carl was a man who was more interested in loving his family than he was about his career or his retirement package. When I would speak to Carl in the mornings, he could not speak of the day of his salvation without weeping and trying to hold it together. He didn't know any of the theological terms that I was learning, but one thing I was more certain of than any seminary professor that I had, Carl loved Jesus deeply. You see, church, looking back at my training, and I'm still going through it today. I will value those early morning visits with a man who knew God intimately as much as those sitting in classrooms and learning very important doctrinal, doctrinal things. A biblical elder is not a man who is trying to be something. He is a man who is something. He is devoted to God, to his wife, and to his children, no matter if he is recognized by the church or not. Beloved, the measure of a man is his family. Concerning elders, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Church, I've got four more pages of notes and no time. Maybe we'll pick it up next week. I'll talk to Pastor Paul. But I think this is a good place for us to stop and consider what it looks like in your life. As a man, are you seeking these qualities? I think even as a woman, are you seeking the qualities of what it looks like to honor and respect and to know God well? I hope that you are. I'm encouraged by Sam and his testimony in, uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 2. Paul is going to lay out the instruction for men and women and what it looks like that older men should be teaching younger men. Not a suggestion, but a command. The older men are to be sound in doctrine. The younger men are to be sound in doctrine. The older women are to be sober-minded and sound in doctrine. And they're to be teaching the younger women to be sober-minded and sound in doctrine, to love their husbands. It's a picture of what Sam is doing now. It's an organic thing where we live together, where we care about each other well, where we love each other well. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this beautiful letter. I thank you, God, that uh, you have set it here for us to read cleanly, to challenge us, that we may know you well, Lord. Lord, you have set out these qualifications not as something that we attain so we can get some 
form or some title. But Lord, that the men who love you, who know you well, who recognize you, and without title will walk with you regardless of what men speak of them. Lord, I pray that we would be that kind of a people who is first and foremost set apart for you and for your work, Lord. I pray that we could be as the Apostle Paul, that we could truly say of our lives that we are slaves of God and that we are proclaiming that which the King has said, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.